You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. A very good evening to you. It's Mike Putty filling in for Graham Hill on the Weekend Variety Wireless. He is away. It is the anniversary of the crew murders. I'm, I'm a little unsure what his connection is with the crew murders, but he was away doing something this weekend to do with the crew murders, and we thought it would be a very timely exercise to replay the interview with Keith Hunter. The Case of the Missing Bloodstain, the book that Keith Hunter released. This is a fascinating insight to what happened on June 17th, back in 1970, on that stormy night. Peter Williams QC said about this book, it was the finest forensic book on trials ever. And when you listen to the story unfold over the next hour, you will be left wondering, like some sort of Cluedo game, who actually did it? Was it Len? as put to everybody by Keith Hunter? Was it somebody else? Was it a murder-suicide, as Pat Booth says? We've also got the calls that you made when we first played this interview. It's all coming up over the next hour. It is, of course, the anniversary of the crew murders today, June 17. Let's take you back to when Graham Hill caught up with Keith Hunter who wrote the book, The Case of the Missing Bloodstain. It's Radio Live Sunday night on the weekend, Variety Wireless. The Case of the Missing Bloodstain. Keith Hunter is the author and he joins us now. Keith, thanks for coming in. Thank you for the opportunity. If, as you can see, the cover's been torn off mine because I, I, I read it so hard. I read it so hard. I thought, oh no, another crew murder book. Right. You've got original thought in here though and you've thought about some things kind of hard and and it's like evidence that's been in front of people's face that you say just hasn't been looked at right. It's astonishing the things that were missed back in the 70s. Mm. I, I'm astonished uh, that some of the stuff which is photographic and cannot be denied, essential material, it was never properly analysed. It's uh, astonishing. Okay, first of all, a little backstory. What happened? June 17, Pukekawa, 1970, stormy night. Actually, seemed like the world was a little bit in black and white in those days, it and was grey. Black and white, yeah, it was a black and white world. <laughs> yeah, right. Jeanette and Harvey Crew, farmers in Pukekawa. Yep. Jeanette was the daughter of Demler, Len Demler. That's right. He, and he, he owned lived the next farm. Door. Yeah, he lived next door. His yep. wife, she owned half the farm. He owned half the farm. Yep. Yep. She had taken half his farm because uh, not long earlier the, the tax department had found he'd, uh, he'd cheated them for 10 years. And they, uh, they, they fined him uh, £10,000, which he didn't have. So he had to sell half his farm to his wife uh, to get her to pay off the, uh, the tax bill. Without coming to any conclusions about how they died and who did it, it was on that night, June 17th, it's pretty clear that that was the night, it was a stormy night, that yep. shots were heard. That was the, the the paper. The next day was the one that was left in the, the in the mailbox. The two or three days were left in the mailbox. Next thing people know, it's uh, when are the bodies discovered? Len Demler himself went to visit uh, to see what was up at the, the. He hadn't heard from his daughter, and daughter had others for four or five days. So he went to visit, and he found that they weren't there. Instead, he found that the lounge was covered in blood. The chair, the, the furniture seemed to be all over the place and little Rochelle, his eight, their 18-month-old daughter, his granddaughter, uh, was alone in, a, in, a, in her cot, dirtied with uh, dirty nappies all over the place and, uh, and no sign of, their parent, of her parents. Mm -hmm. And the police get involved and there's the search. That's right. And then it's a long time until the bodies are discovered, isn't it? 
It's three months, Hamilton, let me think, June, uh, two months before the first body, that of, of uh, Jeanette, was found, and she was found shot. She'd been shot in the head, and then a month later to the day, uh, Harvey was found also shot in the head in, and, and dumped in the river. And dumped in the river. Uh, were they both weighed down with axles? Well, no, they weren't. Uh, Jeanette was found just floating freely, and it was deduced from, well, from nothing, actually. The Hutton swore, and his boss swore that uh, they that Harvey would be found weighed down and blow me down. He was. Uh, no reason for that uh, deduction at all. OK. How did you come to be interested in this case? Back in 2001, I was asked to direct a, a television documentary in association with the book that was coming out at the time by Chris Burt. Uh, Chris is a, a Taupo uh, journalist who's followed the case since the 70s, and he's chased the, uh, the police department through the Official Information Act and got all sorts of material from the police files. He, he used that in his book. I was to do a documentary on it, but when I went through all the transcripts, uh, a fairly thorough research effort, I found I could go a lot further than Chris did and uh, put forward uh, other arguments to TVNZ at the time and they turned them all down and said we only want the original film and so it never happened. To tell a long story very briefly, uh, Arthur Thomas was became the suspect in the murder case after Len Demler... Well, Len Demler was the prime suspect for a little while, then... For, for, for the first three months. For the first three months. Then it switched to Arthur Thomas, convicted twice in court, and eventually pardoned, and it was shown that the case was, shall we say, mishandled. <laughs> that's a gentle way to put it. Yes. Right. OK, that's the back story. It really divided that community, too. Yeah, that yes, scars are still there, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Well, I hope my book will, um, will solve a few, satisfy a few minds down there. No, it's going to upset people too. Well, they can't argue with the facts. They can argue perhaps with the deductions, but to do that, they've got to find out, come up with other deductions, and I can't find any but the ones that are in my book. The facts for the deductions are there, the conclusions are clear. Yeah. Well, Len Demler is dead, but he still has uh, many friends and relatives. Let's cut to the chase. In reading substantial evidence that you got here, but really, the centre point for your evidence is how you look at the arrangement of the furniture in the lounge. Describe. This is the centre point of your... that brings you to the conclusion. Well, it, my conclusion involves a number of things. One is, uh, the central thing is the lounge as it was found and as it was drawn by a draftsman, a surveyor of the time, Brian Sly. He, the police called him in, he drew up the way the lounge looked in terms of a floor plan. They also took uh, heap, uh, heaps of, of photographs. Now, in my view, those photographs and that floor plan has never been properly analysed. My analysis links into the crew's lifestyle as it was discovered by the police. Now, they found that while prior to their marriage, uh, Jeanette had been quite outgoing uh, and quite social, that when they married and came to Pukekaa and took up the, uh, that farm, they became hermits. They essentially kind of retired from life while they had friends around the place. They didn't have a social life. They didn't go out for dinner. They didn't invite people in for dinner. Their next-door neighbour across the road had known them for four years and never been inside their house. So they were people who didn't have a social life. So clearly these, these two murders were committed by somebody who, who was inside the house. Now, I'm putting aside the, the, the police's ridiculous story that they were shot from outside through the kitchen kitchen louvers. That's absurd for a whole heap of reasons, which the Royal Commission of Inquiry in 1980 discovered. But when you have a look at the, 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 the room, when you contemplate the way Harvey was killed, and when you contemplate the setup of the chairs, and who used which chair in what 
uh, situation, you find that there was only one situation where the chairs, as found, were ever positioned prior to these deaths, and that was when Len Dembo was there to watch television. In the crew lounge, there are two sort of sofa-y chairs and one couch in front of the fire. The sofa-y chair would be facing the TV. That was Harvey's chair. He would sit there. The other sofa-y chair is almost always the other side of the room by the fireplace. How do you know it was always like that unless Demler was there? Because people who visited the, the crews, like uh, Harvey's mother would come from time... She, she lived down south. She would visit from time to time. She's the only other person they seem to have as a guest. Uh, she described the room in its normal circumstance and that particular chair was across the other side of the fireplace under the windows on the other side. And the other person who spoke there about the chairs, who, who, who apart from Demler, was a woman named Thurl Pirrish. She was a friend of... Um, of Jeanette's and she gave evidence at all the trials and all the hearings that when she was there on the morning of the Wednesday, the, the, the day they were killed, on that morning, this particular chair that I'm talking about was also across the other side of the room. So it's quite plain from, when, from the position of the chairs, the layout of the room, that that was the place where this particular chair always was. But it was found on the other side of the room and basically in a position where it would be when Demler watched television with them. <laughs> It's an interesting observation, but unfortunately there are all those periods of time because you've just said yourself that they didn't have a social life. How do you conclude? How do people know? Because so, there were so few visitors that that was the situation normally. It might have, you know, just two people out of the blue. If you, that night it was really stormy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now Harvey was found shot in the back of his, from, the, in, from behind in the back of his head. He was clearly sitting in his armchair. No one's denied or contradicted that. He was sitting in his armchair in yep. front of the fire, either facing the fire or facing the television set on the other side of the room. Shot in the back of the head on a really stormy night. Now, in, since the, the back door was close to the lounge, just through the kitchen doors, if anyone had come in the back door and opened the door, it would be instantly have known by the, to the crews in the back and Harvey would not have been surprised, so surprised he was shot in the back of the head. So there's no way that somebody could get in and shoot him by surprise. The killer was somebody who was there by consent. Otherwise, he would have been facing them and he would have been shot in the front of the head, not the back of the head. So everything points to the, the killer as being somebody who was there with their knowledge, with their consent, and he was clearly shot from the direction of the kitchen. So that narrows it down to the friends that would visit. That's what you're saying. It narrows it down to the only people who ever known to be there at night. There was only one. Yeah, he's uh, Len Demler. Yeah, but there was the mother as well. She would be. She would visit. I'm not fingering her for the murder. She hadn't been there for 18 months. Right. Okay. She she lived in Paiatua down south, and she was she came up every now and again to visit. And that was the last time she'd been up was uh, a year a year and a half earlier. To the real crux of the matter, within the crux of the matter, how was the seating arrangement when Len Demler visited, and how do we know that is the seating arrangement, and why is that the seating arrangement when Len Demler visits? <laughs> The police didn't really ask about the, 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 this particular layout of, of those chairs. The only, their only interest in terms of the, of the furniture was the couch. They thought that the couch was forward. One of its cast is in a pool of blood in the middle of the room from which it had been pushed back and a stripe had been made, which proved that, it was, that they had been sitting, watching the, uh, sitting in front of the fire at night. That was their view. Now, in that case... There was no cause for the chair to be on the back side, of the, on the other side of the room. There's only one reason for that chair ever to go there, 
and that was for Len Devlin to sit in to watch television. I mean, so how, how, how often do people lip, shift an armchair from one side of the room to another? You don't do it. If it's across there, it's there for a reason. You don't just shift an armchair 10 or 12 feet f f without cause. And that is how the murder scene is photographed, and that is how it was. Next to the dining table, there's a large, thumpy chair sitting there. It belongs on the other side of the room, under the, under the kitchen. You can see the hole where it belongs. There's, yeah. a, there's a gap there, and something belongs in there. It's got to be that chair, because the chair's in the wrong place. Therefore, that's the normal place for the chair, and where it's found by the police is not the normal place for the chair. They were shot on the Wednesday evening, that's the right. 17th. On the Wednesday morning, strong evidence... Someone was there and the chair was in its normal position Thurl, by the fireplace. Thurl Pirrett was her name. She visited uh, yep. Jeanette and she said that's where the chair was when I was there. So by the time they were shot, that chair was shifted Correct. to the position you state is how Len would have it, how they would have it set up for Len and that. Harvey to watch telly. I'm not the only one that says that. Len said that. Now, the thing is, that at the beginning of this investigation, he lied complete, repeatedly about the position of the chair, of that chair, when he was there. He kept saying that the chair would be shifted for Harvey to sit in, and Harvey would give Len his own chair by the fire. Now, that's patently untrue. Harvey and Len and Jeanette did not get on. There was a family split, and Len was, a, was on the other side of the split. So there's no way that Harvey would give up his chair, a hard-working farmer, to, a, to somebody who came on a weekly or even daily basis. There's no way he would give up his favourite chair by the fire. Clearly, he didn't do that. Later in the, in the process, Demler changed his mind and put himself in the other chair. In my view, that's when he felt he was safe from prosecution. We told the truth. Either that or we'd forgotten what he said in the beginning. But he plainly changed his story from the beginning to the end about that chair. Now, that lie, it's plainly a lie, has got to be had something to do with the murders. And it was what it did was show that that chair was across there for Harvey. And that uh, if Dimmer had been there, he would have been in the other chair. So your conclusion is he did visit that night at the 17th and committed the murders? Yes. The scene of that murder afterwards, why the hell didn't he shift the chair back? I probably was too late. I suspect he didn't think of it. Now, we're not going to go too far into this, though. <laughs> we're not going too far here. Now, I've written that book in such a way that people can try and work it out for themselves, like an Agatha Christie thing. I'm not going to tell you here exactly that, those bits and pieces. Yeah, I'm but you tell us who, who did, the, did the murder at the start rather than Agatha Christie at the end. Well, you, you do, yes, you do every, say every, that. Everybody knows that. Uh, the, everybody who studied this case knows that it was Dem Len Demler. That's not really a secret. Oh, I don't know. Pat Booth disagrees. Oh, well, yes, he does. That's true. Yeah. I disagree with Pat. Okay. Well, you can disagree together later on in this hour, too. <laughs> That'll be good. Because, you know, whatever you think of Pat's conclusion, man, he did some sterling oh, work. Uh, no one's going to deny that. No, no. Right. Who fed the baby? Well, the, the evidence is pretty strong. I don't know why there's an associated question, did anybody feed the baby? Now, that, that's a question that the police put to, to several uh, doctors and uh, child experts. But when you have a look at the facts, now, the baby was found in her, in her cot with, and with dirty nappies around the place. There were other dirty nappies on top of the fridge and around the washing machine. And beside the washing machine was a bucket full of nappy sand. Now, you would expect that if somebody had been there and changed the nappies, who knew about babies, they would put the nappies in the bucket of, of nappy sand. But they weren't. They were on the top of the fridge. The other thing was, the, there were at least three pairs or four pairs of nappies, dirty nappies, found there. Now, how is the baby going to dirty a nappy if there's nothing in her stomach? She's got to be fed something to be processed by her body and delivered to the nappies. So quite plainly, she did eat. Therefore, she, there was somebody there who fed her. The other thing is, if 
the bucket of nappy sand that was there and the nappies were instead put on top of the fridge, it indicates somebody who didn't know about nappy sand. Now, I reckon that a farmer, a, a crusty old farmer like Demler would never, ever have dealt with a baby himself. He wouldn't know what that bucket was for. A woman would. So the dirty nappies go on top of the fridge, obviously. Demler changed the baby. Demler fed the baby. That's who it was. It couldn't be anybody else. Okay, I'll get to your theory on the sighting of the woman outside and why yeah. in a moment, but I want to address the motive because this is the thing I find really difficult to understand and maybe I should be thankful that I find it difficult to understand how a father can bash the side of the head of his daughter in and shoot her. What motive is going to make a father do that to his daughter? Harvey's one thing. But Jeanette, I mentioned that uh, Demler had had to f was obliged to sell half, give sell half of his farm to his wife. So she died about six months before this, and she left a will. Now Demler had given half of his farm to her. He expected that when she died, her will would deliver that half of the farm back to him, but it didn't. It was worded in such a way that th that half of the farm was actually Jeanette's, but. Len could have all the use and income from it as long as he farmed it. Now, what the police, what, what Hutton thought, being a, uh, a former farmer himself, he thought that the, the motive for Demler would be that he thought Jeanette could interfere with his running of the farm and he didn't want that, therefore he killed her. That was the police motive from the beginning, a non-motive, really, a piece of nonsense. The truth is, in my view, that, that they never recognised that if Demler sold the farm, the farm would... Uh, Maisie's half would go to Jeanette. So Demler would end up with half of the value of his farm instead of all of it. Daughter and her husband's life for half a farm? He wanted to retire. He had a new girlfriend already. He wanted to retire. It was quite clear from the documentation in the police files that he kept saying, I wanted to go to South Africa with the All Blacks. I want to go and play, play bowls in, on the Gold Coast. In fact, two years after all this, he sold his farm and did retire. That's uh, adequate proof for me. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it doesn't I'll, 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 sound like a strong enough motive for me, but then again, well, uh, it's too nice. You might not be the, the, the sort to kill a daughter. Demler was. Okay. The other big mystery that adds this sort of spookiness to the entire case, that someone was seen outside the crew house after they were murdered with Rochelle, the baby. It looked like people were there. Also, fire sparks seen out the top of the chimney. Mm. You say this was Len and his new lady trying to set up an alibi for themselves for the Saturday to try and make it look like they were killed on the Saturday, right? Explain. The police thought from the evidence of a, of a mailbox outside the house, which was full of Thursday's paper and milk and bread, Friday's paper and milk and bread, that the murders must have happened on the Wednesday night because otherwise those things would have been taken. That's a pretty reasonable uh, supposition, it seems to me. Yeah. So they're dead on the Wednesday night, and yet a woman's seen there on the Friday morning. The baby is seen on the Saturday. There are sparks coming out of the chimney. On None of those things should have happened. No, they all had the same quality. None of them should have happened. They're all impossible. So therefore, it seems to me, they're all part of the same event because they all tell the same story. That woman was standing there saying to anybody that passed, hey, I'm Jeanette, I'm not dead yet. 
the baby sighting of the baby said the same thing. The baby Rochelle was standing up there waving an unseen flag to anybody going past saying, hey, look, my mum's not dead yet. I'm still here because I got outside out of my cot. The same with the fire on the Friday night. If you're going to see people in that house on the Friday night, the only way to do it on a black night with a storm going is make a huge fire in the fireplace and have sparks going at the top. That could be arranged without any trouble if you've got the right stuff to burn. All of these things say one thing. Jeanette and Harvey are not dead yet. No sightings of that nature after the Saturday night. On the Saturday night, Demler had a superb alibi. He had been watching football for the local Jubilee from 2 in the, in the afternoon to 2 in the morning. Therefore, Demler could not have killed them on the Saturday night. And yet, all of these sightings indicate that the murders occurred on the Saturday night. It's plain to me that all of these things were one event. They were alibi-creating. So risky. Any visitor, you'd have to kill them. They didn't have visitors. Random visitor, well, stock agent. True, true, but they didn't. Yeah. I, I, and why didn't they, if they're smart enough to try and figure out this complex alibi creation, check the mailbox for the milk and the paper. Right, sure, but Demler, and it's plain from a book, the, the book by Chris Burt, Demler told one of the people uh, visiting and staying with him after the murders who was going to go up the roadway to get to the cruise house from Demler's house next door. He said, don't go that way, you can go through the bush, nobody will see you. The way that Demler visited that house um, after the murders was through the bush. That's what he did. He didn't go up by the road. The, the mailbox is on the road. He never thought of it. He didn't see it. And, I, and I, I've said in the book, in the book this, was a, 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 this wasn't a clever murderer at all. He was, a, he was an idiot, a muddler. He didn't know any... It wasn't until the day after it, I'm quite sure, that he realised he had to have an al He could create an alibi. When no one visited on the, on the Thursday, he thought, well, what am I going to do? I can use this. I think he screwed up everything. He screwed up the room, he screwed up his alibi, he screwed up the whole lid. He was a useless murderer. And the genesis of the greatest mysteries, the people that have, the, the mysteries that people wonder about the most is because of a failed attempt to create an alibi over those three days. Yeah, makes perfect sense to me. I think that, that pretty much sums up your yep. case. Yep. Pat Booth does disagree. He's going to have his say. Keith Hunter is our guest today. The case of the missing bloodstain, if you have any questions or comments, feel free. It is one of those criminal incidents that has haunted New Zealand, I think, for a very, very long time because an innocent man was convicted and spent nine and a bit years in jail and nobody's looking for the real murderer. They haven't since 1970. Why? Because the police and the justice system doesn't want to. We'll take a break, come back very shortly with uh, your calls and talking with Keith Hunter a little more. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Radio Live with Mike filling in for Graham Hill on the weekend Variety Wireless. How you doing? Sunday night. Still no baby from Jacinda, FYI. Keep an eye on that for you. I'm sure you will know. Is <laughs> somebody, somebody I know lives very close to Jacinda Ardern. So I'm sure that they will send me a little text if anything happens. But what happened back in 1970 on June 17th with Harvey and Jeanette Crew? This case has fascinated New Zealanders for a very long time. Keith Hunter, brilliant forensic writer, brilliant journalist, 
documentary maker. He wrote a book called The Case of the Missing Bloodstain. And it answers a lot of questions. And Keith is right, you can't argue with hard facts. But then joining the conversation very soon, Pat Booth. Right now, though, it is time to rejoin this conversation. The first interview that Graham Hill had with Keith Hunter, where he started asking for your calls. And boy, you've got to keep listening because as the calls rolled in during that evening, perhaps even new evidence came to light. So let's return to Graham Hill talking with Keith Hunter, the author of The Case of the Missing Bloodstain on the anniversary of the death of Jeanette and Harvey Crew. Keith Hunter's our guest, his book out, Case of the Missing Bloodstain. He's thought hard about it. You've heard the evidence and the conclusion. Uh, you can have your say, uh, anything you like. Barbara McGrath, thank you very much for calling through from Auckland. Yeah, hi, Graham. Keith. Hello. I came to exactly the same conclusion, and I'll tell you why. I worked for a local newspaper, or it was a photo news actually, in Pukekohe, and was one of the first reporters at the scene. And I remember seeing a guy walking, riding a horse around in the paddock and said to the police officer, who's that? And he told me, and I said, well, that's really strange. Why would a guy just be riding his horse around the paddock when the, what had been discovered in the house had been discovered? You'd be absolutely frantic. Not just riding a horse around the paddock. Having been brought up on a farm, I couldn't understand why it wasn't discovered earlier by Demmer in the sense that you've got animals, dogs bark if they're not fed, you notice the letterbox hasn't been cleared, you often go across, the animals all interact if they're not being tended to. And the distance between the two houses wasn't that great. And I always thought Demmer must have known what had happened in that house long before it had been discovered. And that's, I came to the conclusion very early on that, and couldn't understand why the police never focused on investigating him more oh, for those very reasons. They, they did, uh, it's Margaret, isn't it? Barbara, yeah. Barbara, Barbara. Oh, Barbara. Barbara. Oh, sorry, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, look, they did, for three months they investigated uh, Demler. They did everything they could to create, put up a case against him and they failed. Principally because they couldn't find the rifle that he would have he would have used. Yeah, in other words, you said it. They failed. Oh yes, they failed dismally. So, it was a totally incompetent investigation. Yeah. Where is the rifle? What rifle did he use then? There was a rifle, a double-barreled rifle that his his in-laws, his his wife's parents, father had brought out from England. It was it went dated back to about the 1920s. Double-barreled and had uh, two bores, points three six zero. Rifle bores. Now, the common thing with those in England was to use them on small game. But there was, they w when they came here, they were commonly changed, and one barrel would be bored out to a 410 shotgun, and the other would be have a sleeve put in it with it for a 22 rifle. That's what they thought had happened, but they could not find that rifle, and until so it's in the Waikato River or something, is it? Uh, well, there's a story that might be in the uh, river on the other side of the uh, the isthmus, but um, Demler described it quite clearly to the uh, the uh, Royal Commission ten years later. So uh, it, there's no doubt it existed. One slightly, uh, if we can say the word, comedic piece is when the police went back to Arthur because he had a rifle that did match, okay? It uh, would, or couldn't be excluded. If you had some good policing, you go and get that rifle, right? Mm -hmm. But if he was the murderer, <laughs> would he have kept it for five weeks well, or whatever it was? It was three months. Three months. In fact, it was four months in the end, and he gave it to them twice. Having he could have flown to Brisbane to throw it in the, in the Brisbane River. He could have. 
He could have, yeah. But no, he just kept it at home. And he, all the time knowing that outside the window of the kitchen of the two people he had murdered, he had left behind a cartridge case that he couldn't find. According to the police. Having done that, he then gave them twice his own rifle to compare with that cartridge case that he knew it was there. Sorry, we've taken over your call, Barbara. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, not at all. Just very interesting listening to your articles today. Spooky, though. It really, it, it created a sort of tension and anxiety in Pukekohe. That's something you can tell us about. Oh, without a doubt. Everyone was full of talk, what was happening, why, who, what for. Um, there was all that story about the watch that there was the blood on it, which mm. was really strange. Mm. I remember that. Yeah, that was a clincher for a lot of the public, wasn't mm. it? Mm. Yeah, it was important. I just want to go back to something that Barbara said before about the dogs and the cows. Mm. Well, when the police arrived, in fact, initially, uh, in fact, the dogs had been fed. They were fed, they had uh, supposedly been without food for five days. Somebody fed them. The cows the same. On the Friday morning, a farmer had noticed that they were hungry because they'd come down to the fence line on his side of the, the farm, um, making a bellowing and making a huge noise. Two days later, they didn't. They'd been fed. So somebody fed both the cows and the dogs. Okay, let's go to Grant. Hello, Grant. Hello there. Yeah, um, Keith, something that I find quite plausible about the Demler theory is that if he was in the house on a regular basis, he would have known damned well that Harvey's crew would drop off to sleep at some point while watching telly. I mean, every man does. That's right. His, uh, Harvey's mother, Marie, gave evidence to that effect uh, at the time. She said that Harvey would watch television and then drop off. So clearly, if Demler was there, he would do the same thing. But on the other side of the argument, how did a little man like Demler manhandle a dead body like crew who was said to be about 17 stone weight? Grant, that's not my theory. That, that was the police's theory. That was uh, the, the, they. It's, it's recorded in the police notes of uh, of their meetings that they thought that Demler was a, an unusually strong man and would have no trouble shifting Harvey. So you, you should ask that of Inspector Hutton. Mm. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. If you were driven to kill, people can do some amazing things mm. to save their skin and with adrenaline. I mean, he would have been traumatised after doing it. I think so. Let's go to Terry. Yes, good morning, guys. Keith, I have two quick questions for you. Uh, yes or no, was Len Demler's car found spattered with blood that matched their types? Was that true? No, there was a there, there, there was a blood stain on the front seat, seat that was of the same type as Jeanette, but uh, very little notice was ever taken of it. It was mentioned a few times, but it wasn't considered to be... And same okay. type as Jeanette is about the same type as about third of yes. the country. Yes. O okay, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was fishy. But my main thing is I always thought Len did it because wasn't their wedding anniversary due and there was something, something in paper to the effect that after so many years of marriage she would receive her inheritance? Is that true? And, that, and the anniversary was just about due too. That's what made me think he did it right from the beginning. I don't know that theory. I think that I've Harvey and that. Jeanette's uh, anniversary was, was due. But yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, sorry, that's what I'm talking. And, and, and I think uh, that is true. Years or so, she was due to inherit um, the farm, wasn't that the no, whole motive? No, she doesn't she, get it until... And, until if, if Lynn leaves uh, or dies. Leaves or dies, that's correct. Okay, yeah. so there was no proviso about no. being married for so long? No. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you, Terry. We'll have to take a break and come back. We'll take Christine and uh, as many other calls as we can, but we have to leave some room for uh, Pat Booth as well, who has uh, a different theory, shall we say. We're discussing the crew murders, the case of the missing bloodstain, the conclusion from basically the layout of the furniture in the lounge points, according to Keith Hunter, definitely to Len Demler having done it. 
The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Let's return now to Graham Hill's interview with Keith Hunter. On the anniversary of Harvey and Jeanette Crewe's death, June 17th, 1970, this is where Pat Booth joins the conversation. The late, great Pat Booth, who died earlier this year, he shares his thoughts. Of course, Pat Booth, uh, two famous trials that I remember he, him covering uh, was Mr Asia and also, of course, the Arthur Allen Thomas case. And because of his investigative work, and a book written called Trial by Ambush, Arthur Allen Thomas eventually pardoned. So Pat Booth joins this conversation as we get back to the case of the missing bloodstain, Keith Hunter and Graham Hill on the Weekend Variety Wireless. Speaking with Keith Hunter, author of The Case of the Missing Bloodstain, his new evidence, which isn't actually new evidence, new way of looking at the evidence, primarily the layout of the lounge, pointing to Len Demler being the man who killed his daughter, which makes my stomach turn, and bashed her in the face... With, uh, yes, he did. With the, right, the butt of a rifle. The, not the jaw, not no, the teeth no, out. The, 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 no, he didn't, no, not that. He's, he, he bashed her in the upper part of the face. He broke her nose and destroyed her, the, her eye. Uh, Orbitary. Okay. All right, let's go to your calls. We'll get as many as we can, but we want to hear from Pat Booth as well. Uh, hello, Ben from Nelson. Oh, hi. Um, you said that Lynn Demler's wife uh, was dead? Yes. And he was in a relationship with another woman? Yes. Uh, she was Jeanette Demler originally, wasn't she? Yes. So he, she had an, imp, uh, they had an insurance policy on their life, and who collected the insurance? Uh, the, um, Len got Len got the money from his daughter's insurance policy. I don't know that his daughter's insurance policy would surely have gone to his to her daughter and, and first of all to her husband. So Len, later on, in, uh, later on, when uh, Len Demler actually was a suspect by the police, he took a holiday in Thailand, didn't he? He took off to Thailand. Uh, I think that's after the trials. That's well after all these things have occurred. Was it? Yeah. yeah okay. he, he went away, I think, some months after either the after the first trial, perhaps. Certainly yep. after the second. Mm. So why did the police allow him to leave? I mean, he was a suspect at no, some he, stage, wasn't he? No, by that, by that time, he wasn't a suspect. He, he was dropped by the police in September uh, 1970, before uh, Arthur Thomas was arrested. Okay, um, we are running out of time. We'll see what Mike has to say. Hello, Mike. Yeah, morning, Graham and Keith. Hello. I've always found it very difficult to uh, come to grips with the fact that uh, Len Demler had actually done it himself. I always thought that he 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 knew something, um, but I didn't think he'd gone so far as to do it. But I'm just wondering, I was going to ask you, because I, I sort of uh, believed in time that it was a murder-suicide. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that, whether there would be enough evidence to support that theory. Uh, that's uh, that's Pat Booth's theory. Uh, his theory yeah, is yeah, if, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, I don't think that the, the layout of the rooms uh, uh, accommodates that, uh, yeah. and I can't handle the notion that Jeanette had been bashed in the face by her husband so badly that she had a broken nose. Oh, and but her father did. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It's just so difficult to come to grips with the fact that her father could have done such a thing. Yeah. Well, I don't. The information from the police files was that uh, Demler was hated in the district. He was a violent man. He, he was really off his skull and could easily have done it. I mean, this was the police theory for three months, don't forget. They had no doubt whatever that okay. Demler was the killer. Pat Booth is with us. He's been listening. Look, the floor's yours, Pat. Have your say. Really, the first thing I want to, want to do is congratulate Keith on a, a tremendous piece of research. Thank you. 
Uh, I'm not surprised, of course, because I was very impressed before with the work he did on the South Island case. But I think that the most important feature of the book, from my point of view, is that he, like me, and the eight others who have written books in the last 40 years, are unanimous that Arthur Allen Thomas was innocent. Has the book, Pat, changed your theory of murder-suicide? No. I'm puzzled by the... Uh, by the Chanel gun, which I've only just simply glanced through the book, obviously, but it appears at one stage to have a uh, a shotgun attachment, but then it also has another one which describes it as having .360 shells and saying that a 22 shells were much longer than the... I'm, I'm puzzled. Does, uh, does Keith think that it really was the Chanel rifle, or was it another one? Are we, are we searching for another one? No, I'm, I'm absolutely positive it was a Chanel rifle, Pat. Demler gave evidence to the Royal Commission that the he found in his in his uh, one of his sheds this rifle, which was a Chanel rifle. It had a, a, a shotgun barrel on one side. It had a twenty a twenty two on the other side. The other thing is that the whole notion of the bash in the face of Jeanette is evidence that the killer had a reason to bash her in the face rather than, than shoot her. That rifle gives the reason. The reason was he had to reload. Now, I've tried to reload one of those uh, double-barrel rifles like that myself, and it takes 40 or 50 seconds. Yes, I, I can see that as a very valid point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it indicates uh, that that's a very good reason for her to be bashed by the person who did the killing. Pat, one question. I find your murder-suicide appealing for the human nature side of things, but the difficulty with your theory, was Jeanette not shot from behind? I wasn't aware that the entry was from behind, but it's 40 years ago, my good man, 40 years ago. It's pivotal, though. Yeah. You know, she, she, was, she, was, she, was, uh, she was shot from just above the, the, the right ear, and the bullet was found towards the forehead on the, on the other side of her face. Okay. Do you find it difficult, as I do, to imagine a man bashing his daughter as well as in the face, as well as shooting her? Pat? I, oh, yes, I certainly do. I certainly do. Uh, but on the other hand, if whoever it was was in a, a very violent and um, yes. totally off his, off his tree, yep. and I would think that, again, whoever it was, the, the event would develop. If he shot Harvey first, then the uh, sort of paradoxum of, of violence took a stage further. Yes, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. And he hit the woman even though it was his daughter. Mm. Yeah. Pat, look, thank you very much for ringing through. We all thank you very much uh, I, for, I do for too, helping Pat. us. I'm an admirer of yours, as you may be aware. Yeah, certainly. I, I think it helped New Zealand society with the work he did. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm not blowing that out of proportion at all. We'll take our final break and come back and wrap it up with Keith Hunter. We may be able to take a call. We'll just see. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Radio Live with Mike filling in for Graham. Hell, great to have you company this Sunday evening. No matter where you are, thank you so much for listening to Radio Live. New sport and weather not too far away, but let's return now to the wrapping up of this conversation that Keith Hunter and Graham Hill have been having based on the book The Case of the Missing Bloodstain all about Harvey and Jeanette Crew and their murders back on, oh, was it June 17? 
All dates point to that particular date. Back in the 1970s, it uh, was a stormy night then, and all the evidence you've heard over the past hour. Then all of a sudden, during this conversation, the boys get a phone call. Quite a compelling phone call as well. So let's wrap up this conversation on the weekend variety wireless. It's Mike filling in for Graham Hill. The case of the missing bloodstain by Keith Hunter, I assure you listeners, we're only skimming the surface. Colin in Auckland, we do have time for your call. Oh, yes, um, Keep it brief, though. If, uh, you, yes, others. Um, Dr. Nelson, you mentioned him in your book, and uh, he was retired early because of shonky evidence he gave in other cases they discovered. That is correct. Uh, he gave false evidence and shonky evidence in the, in the Thomas case, yes. Yes, so I thought I'd mention that. Yes, no, uh, he, did, he, did a, uh, he was a dreadful, you know, a dreadful scientist. He surely was. Yes, okay then. All right. Christine from the Waikato, hello. Yeah, hi. Um, there was another suspect weapon. And well, I don't know whether it was a Remington or a Browning, it was a twenty-two. Nelson, who had just been discussing... Uh, claimed that there were two rifles he could not exclude from the possibility that they'd fired the, those shots. And yes, there was another weapon. It was held by a local family. We had one confiscated by the police. Oh, really? Yes. That will never come out. What, what, sorry, what's your second name? What, what name was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, who are you? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that you did anything, but I'm very interested to know that a rifle was confiscated. It I don't know about that. It was confiscated by the police. My ex was a armourer. He was a gunsmith in the, in the area. They, the police came in, and I, I suspect that the guy who sold it to him, I think, was Smiley, and it was linked to Demler. And when the police came, they took the weapon. In those days, the weapon had its own registration sheet. They yeah, were registered yeah, individually. Keep going, I'm fascinated. And they also ripped up the page out of his arms dealer's licence. Good God. Yeah, good God. It, that information has never, ever come out. Could you hold on the line, Christine? I suspect Keith would like to speak with you in private. We don't expect you to Thank give you. us any I, more details on air. <laughs> I said too much. You've gone too far. Yeah, I would like to have a chat. Christine, thank you. Thank you. Keith, congratulations. And this is without going out and knocking on doors or getting a DNA sample. You've looked at some evidence and looked very hard at it. It's all it's been a eureka moment when you came to that conclusion. You saw that photograph. There are heaps of them, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's compelling in many ways. Find out for yourself. Have the crew murders been solved? No help from the police force, actually. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. It is 3 to 11. It is Radio Live, the weekend variety wireless with me, Mike Puru. Fascinating, isn't it, that chat? Really fascinating and a lot of fantastic feedback coming in as well. Uh, so thank you for all those texts that we're receiving. I'll pass them on to Graham because I'm sure he would love to follow it up. I'm quite fascinated by unsolved murders. And if you go to the Great Pearly Gates when you die and you get asked three questions that you will... Or if you get to ask three questions that you get the answers to, what would they be? When it comes to murders for me, I would say... Whatever happened to Arena Asher, that one has, you know, plagued me for a while. David Bain, what happened there? 
and Ben Smart and Olivia Hope. Leah Parnipper, you got news coming up soon, but what would be the three questions that you would want answered if you got well, to I, the pearly gates? Yeah, I don't know if I would waste time asking about other people's lives. Oh, I'd yeah. say, why didn't you make me six foot and, and size six? Oh, no, yeah, um, I wouldn't mind that either, actually. Yeah, I'd say, yeah. What, what's happening here? Um, no, look, interesting, though. Who, who shot JFK? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Um, also, I was quite fascinated with Marilyn Monroe, Okay, um, yes. You know, well, that's another good one. That was another good one. Because she's, I mean, they said that, you know, obviously they thought she overdosed, but was she killed by, or was it murder? Was she killed by the president's mm, men? Because mm. she was being with both. There's been a lot, of, a lot of talk about I that. I seem to be quite fascinated by the Kennedys. Um, and what really is in those 11 herbs and spices <laughs> that make it so bloody addictive? <laughs> I mean... They Love can't it. just be straight herbs, can they? Oh, no, whatever there's they are, they're there's, there's, there's got to be something in their house. Okay, uh, and you're assuming I'm going to go to the pearly gates as well. So. <laughs> well, true, yes. Yeah, I know. Well, you know theoretically I, speaking. Theoretically, if I'm up there, yeah. Mm. No, those mysteries really are fascinating. No, I do love it. And that's why that book by Keith Hunter is a fascinating read. If you're, if you're into sort of, you know, murder mysteries, then I would pick that one up. Uh, well, thank you very much, Leah. She's got new sport and weather coming up very soon. And after... 11 o'clock, what we're going to do for you is play for you some lost episodes of The Outsiders. Now, that is a series by Jared Hindmarsh. It's a great book that he read, uh, wrote rather, and basically in audio format, you get to hear the story of the Russians who came to New Zealand in 1820. That is coming up next. It's Radio Live, the weekend variety wireless news, sport and weather with Leah is next.